This is episode 38 of Cinescope. And your mother is a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Wendell Jones to talk about one of his favorite films, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Wendell, how are you doing? I am doing super well, matey. Thank you. How are you, Chad? I'm I'm doing pretty good pretty good i'm a little tired uh th- that seems to be the norm but that that's okay because i'm always excited to talk about a favorite movie whether it's my favorite movie or my guest's favorite movie or a mutual favorite movie uh i i love doing this show and i'm looking forward to talking about this movie with you me too seriously i am amped <laughs> <laughs> well how about you introduce yourself because you are yet another member of the sideshow sound family you're the fourth person that i've had on the show from sideshow yeah, I am. Well, hello everyone. My name is Wendell. I am the composer, the social media manager, and the co-founder of SideshowSoundTheater.com, um, where I write a Halloween music album every year with my best bud, Will Dodson, also featured on this show. Um, I help produce the podcast Sideshow Sound Radio. Uh, I host a show on there called Score Guide, where we dive into uh, as many soundtracks as possible, and much like this show, just celebrate the things we love. Definitely. And you know, I were just talking before we hit the record button. Uh, I've been listening to Sideshow since you guys pretty close to when you launched back in 2014. And we've been interacting since then. And it's been fun talking to each other and getting to know each other on Twitter mostly. And now here we are talking, uh, not face to face, but voice to voice, at least for the first time. So um, voice to voice. Voice yeah. to voice. Yes. It's, it's awesome. Finally. And, and to talk about something that is so, enjoyable is a great first discussion <laughs> yes <laughs> um well real quick before we move on I, I this is largely a more self-conscious thing than anything else but you might or might not have heard me lisping a little bit through that intro and it is because i got invisalign braces uh this will be the only time pretty much i ever mention it but uh if you hear a little bit of it that's what it is not a big deal we've mentioned it now let's let's get into the discussion are you ready wendell I am as ready as I am excited. This is my Back to the Future, Chad. <laughs> oh, wow. High praise already. <laughs> we are talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This was released on April 3rd of 1975. So just like last week with Gross Point Blank, we've sort of inadvertently recorded this episode pretty close to its anniversary. So what is it? 42 years? 42 years. Yeah. Whew. Can't believe it. Yeah, hard to believe for sure. It was directed, uh, tag team duo by Terry Gilliam, who directed Time Bandits, Brazil, The Fisher King, 12 Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, and The Zero Theorem, as well as Terry Jones, who went on to direct Monty Python's Life of Brian, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, Personal Services, Eric the Viking, Absolutely Anything, and Boom Bust Boom. It was written by the collective group of Monty Python, and the songs in the film were composed by Neil Inez. Or is that how it's pronounced, Wendell? Or do you have any idea? 
Um, it's British, so it could be strange. I think it might just be ins. I don't, I have no idea. Um, it's it's Monty Python. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I, I will I will trust the the residential Brit and okay. go with Neil Inns. <laughs> yeah, listeners, if you wonder what that strange accent was, I'm not sick. I'm just British. <laughs> <laughs> the movie stars Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, Connie Booth, Carol Cleveland, and Neil Inns. And that is the the Monty Python troupe and a couple of special guests who were uh, Python regulars, from what I gather. So, how about you start us off, Wendell? What was your first experience with this movie? Wow, it's going back a bit. Now, it's not going back 42 years. (laughs) I am nowhere near that old. Um, getting there. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, let me first first say, Chad, that I love the mission brief of this podcast, not to assign ratings, but just celebrating the movies we love. My God, I mean, it's it, it's such a pleasure to just talk about that and just to have the, the time that you were given me to talk about the thing that I love most of all. Um, and that's Monty Python in, in any form. I should start off by saying that I am a huge lover of um, Arthurian mythology. It really intrigues me. I mean, in my infancy, my family and I frequently visited um, a place called Tintagel, Cornwall, in England, which is home to all the mythos of King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table, and Merlin. Um, I watched the very underappreciated and forgotten miniseries Merlin from 98, featuring Sam Neill, Helena Bonham Carter, Miranda Richardson. Seriously check that one out, because the 2008 show has a dreadful script. Don't bother with that tripe. Um, (laughs) I I also read the Arthur trilogy by Kevin Crossley Holland, Mary Stewart's Merlin trilogy, and much like Muppet Treasure Island, um, two of my great loves combined, Pirates and Muppets, it was exactly the same here, Monty Python and Arthurian legend. I think I was destined upon first viewing to get major kicks out of this film and Boy, did I. Um, You mentioned, Chad, in a a recent uh, episode of Cinescope that you tend to love genre-crossing films. And though this is primarily a slapstick comedy, like all of Monty Python's work, uh, and no question one of the greatest English comedies, hands down, even now, 42 years later, it's a fantasy, it's an adventure, it's a period piece, it's an animation in places. I mean, there's a lot to draw from here, not just silly antics on screen, although that is the draw and by no means a bad thing. (laughs) So I picked this up when I was around my early teens and I think I may have watched this the first time around with my, with my friends um, who we, I don't particularly remember paying much attention to it. I think it was just on in the background but I remember coming away from that experience and having so many quotes uh, in the back of my head. Um, just so many things that I remembered. Like I, 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 I still remember that first experience in a way that I don't with any other film. I mean, of course, there's like watching Jurassic Park for the first time, watching Star Wars, watching Star Trek in my case. I mean, there's definitely moments, but this this particularly stood out because I wasn't paying attention to it and still remembered a lot from it, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, so I think that's why it was destined to be a, to be a favorite film for me. Um, but it's, it's so, so funny. I, I, I can't even begin to, to, to tell you how many laughs there are. I, I call it LPM laughs per, per minute. And this <laughs> nice. definitely has more laughs per minute than, 
any other film that I watch for me personally. <laughs> well, cool. I don't have the same sort of obsession or at least deep knowledge of Arthurian legend. I, I have delved into it here and there in the past. I remember reading some of it in specifically middle school, maybe looking into it a little bit in high school, but not not as in-depth as you seem to. But I've always been fascinated by the legend and the storytelling of Lancelot and of Arthur and Guinevere and the round table and all that good stuff. So again, genre crossing, I enjoyed that this movie does sort of set the Monty Python uh, mentality within something that has a little bit more mythos and a little bit more, not historical basis necessarily, but that sort of feel to it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that being said, this was my first time watching the movie. I, I have been aware of this movie for at least since middle school is when I, I probably first remember like knowing of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And in fact, sometime in middle school, I think I had a teacher who actually started playing the movie in class uh, during a free period or something. Wow, good job, that teacher. <laughs> right. Um, unfortunately, I was not all that interested at the time and didn't pay much attention. But over the years, I've, of course, been familiar with many of the the gags and the jokes and individual sketches from the movie just because of how it has sort of permeated culture in its way, as Python tends to. So um, the, the, the witch scene, the Black Knight scene, the... Um, I, I, we'll probably get into more of them later, but there, there are a lot of the, the individual jokes and gags that I was like, oh, yeah, okay, now I've seen it, so I can maybe quote it myself now. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. See it in context, yeah. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, I, I never watched Monty Python of any sort. I, I've maybe seen a few sketches from the show or from other movies online over the years, but... You know, British humor with with the U <laughs> is is not something that was entirely lost to me. So I sort of knew what to expect when easing into this movie. And um, you know, John Cleese was in the Harry Potter movie, so I knew him from that. Eric Idle was in Casper and has been uh, involved with Disney in various capacities. And um, Terry Gilliam, I, I was at least aware of his filmography because he's the only one who really seems to have departed a little bit from strict comedy. Um, in the yeah. same way that, that everybody else has been. So those, those are familiar names to me. And so that was my sort of entire background going into this movie. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, Terry Gilliam is another um, favorite of mine. I mean, uh, just to list them, like uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, the Coen brothers, Darren Aronofsky, Luke Besson, Ridley Scott, and I mean, Terry Gilliam, they are all my favorite um, visual filmmakers. And I use the term visual very deliberately um, because I think this is a, a kind of visual masterpiece in its own way. It's someone who was on the rise to become, in my opinion, one of the the most creative geniuses working in Hollywood today. Because 12, 12 Monkeys is another one of my favorites. It's difficult. Whenever someone asks me my favorite film, I'll give them a different answer, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> It'd be like Raging Bull, then It's a Wonderful Life. Um, Blade Runner, Return to Oz. <laughs> Being John Malkovich. <laughs> The Neon Demon, you know? It's right. So, that, quite a so range. Weird. Um, <laughs> in a weird turn of events, we were either going to talk about Black Swan today or this. So sorry, Aronofsky, aficionados, but humor <laughs> won this round. <laughs> well, may maybe next time, Wendell. Maybe so. Maybe so. Um, and and I, I think when I reflect upon why, why this did attract me so much upon first viewing, I, 
I definitely took life like a little too seriously as a young teenager. I was really studious um, and living in a kind of academic cocoon. So when Monty Python arrived, it took sketches so surreal as they were to force the laughter out of me in a way and kind of, I don't know, maybe chink away at that snooty British attitude I was starting to develop. So my taste for comedy was very much defined by the Pythons and continues to kind of set precedent for what I'm going to enjoy in the genre later on because I I wasn't fanatical about comedies before seeing their content and I know there is a lot of physical humor with the pythons you you have to give them props for their um wit though as well I mean they they write comedy from a very smart place and I think this film shows that clever approach on the surface more than other perhaps fan favorites. Um, it's not a smart comedy by pushing social or political boundaries or, you know, fashionable hyperbole. You know, it's it's craft. It's comedy conceived over a long period of time. And maybe it's a slow burn for some people, but I think that is a testament to this film's longevity. And you have to remember the Pythons came from um, Oxford and Cambridge, um, Oxbridge, as we say in England, uh, <laughs> Oxbridge <laughs> graduates. I mean, they had years and years of writing experience to draw from uh, going into this film. And I think it shows. Um, so, yeah, I think my my biggest kind of personal takeaway from this, this film on first viewing was just how to write good, intelligent comedy and have an absolute blast while doing so. Cool. Let's go ahead and start talking about some of the, the story aspects themselves. So the right off the bat, as, as the best films do, it lets you know what it's going to be. And it, funny story, it's not unusual for me to watch a movie with subtitles. And so when this movie started and the credits were playing and this ominous music is in the background and they've got the opening credits and there's subtitles running along the bottom of the screen. So I was playing the movie uh, via my iPad hooked up to HDMI on the big screen TV, right? And so I... I put down the feet of the recliner. I walked across the room. I was like, okay, something is messing up with my subtitles. <laughs> and so I had to turn off and on the subtitles a couple times before I realized, oh, that is part of the movie. And knowing that, then I restarted the movie and just enjoyed it because there's this ridiculous, like Swedish, pseudo Swedish uh, subtitling going on at the start of the movie. And it, it it just seems so in line with uh, with what the movie ends up being, where you there is a little bit of a tone of seriousness to it, but then it undermines that that serious tone with its own comedy, and that that presents itself first with the subtitles, and then with the acknowledgement that the subtitles guy got fired, and then the acknowledgement of the guy who fired the subtitles guy got fired, and then finally we get into the the more Python esque expected opening credits where you have the silly music and the bright colors uh, transitioning <laughs> into the film itself. So I, I just love that. I, I love a film that tells us what it's going to be from the beginning. It it totally does. It's the funniest opening title sequence ever. And I, I when I, when I heard that you were going into this kind of, you know, semi fresh, I, I was thinking, what is he going to think of this opening? Like, I mean, he, <laughs> it sets you up. If he doesn't like this, he's not going to get the rest of it, you know? <laughs> so, right. Um, interesting. When you watch the special edition DVD, um, at the very start of the film, you get this old short classic called Dentist on the Job, which is a completely different film. 
And that goes up to the end of its opening credits. And then someone in the background says, oh, we got the wrong film. <laughs> and then you see like a quick reel change. And then these credits start. So you get kind of a, a more extended opening credit sequence. And you might think, well, it's a little long, but we don't even get an end credits one. So, um, yeah, we will take it. <laughs> I also love that the the whole movie sort of feels like a long form sketch comedy show. But rather than it being a series of wildly different ideas interspersed throughout the whole thing, everything relates to the central theme and that the ultimate goal is the, to find the Holy Grail. But the the focus of the movie isn't the finding of the Grail. It's the journey there and the the sort of antics and the adventures that they go on to get there. And so I love that it's it's episodic. It's vignettes. It's sketch comedy within a movie format. Yes, yes, it is. And it's something that, at least with um, Life of Brian, that was definitely more cinematic and filmic and had much more structure to it. But this just felt very, very Python. If, if you're used to your uh, the sketches, which you would have been up to this point, then as a Python fan, you would have absolutely loved it. But someone coming in fresh, it, it might take a little bit of time. You know, it's like to think of a more recent uh, show, like if you've ever watched The Mighty Boosh, if you know of that show, <laughs> when you watch that for the first time, like um, it, it's just like, what is this? It's so surreal. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> but um, at, at the centerpiece of that, it, it's it, it's so funny. Um uh, the moment that that I that I always reach for is is that one of the early scenes where they're like, "Dung, bring out your dead," um, which is hilarious in itself because a lot of the characters who the other characters think are dead end up being not quite dead. Um, right. No one can die in this film apparently, apart from Frank. But we'll get to Frank later. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> honestly, it's it's a total parody of the middle ages you know the the violence the disease the poverty um the arranged royal marriages uh, the the history of tension between the french and the english even if historically the norman invasion wouldn't happen for another century um the persecution of the the, the so-called witches <laughs> right um the fact that these characters are doing the best with the ill-conceived knowledge and science that they had at the time and, and and purely the fact that, I, I mean, I love the idea that Arthur spends the entire movie trying to convince people that he, that he is, in fact, king. The only people who believe him are the knights that he collects, you know? <laughs> I mean, there was, right. there was no social media in the 10th century, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, someone at one point said, must be a king. And someone else says, why? And they answer, because he hasn't got mud all over him. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so funny. It really is. Um, every moment, like I said, a, a laugh per minute. <laughs> right. I, I, and I've got to say, it was funny just seeing who in the company was going to be playing which character next. I, mm. I, I sort of love that it was the same people playing all the roles in the movie. If you go to the Wikipedia page and you look at the cast list, you have each actor of the troupe portraying five or six plus characters. And so it was always a sort of a game to look and see, okay, there's Eric Idle. What is he doing this time? Oh, he's playing two characters in this scene, or he just died in this scene and now he's playing somebody else or John Cleese or seeing, seeing how these characters or these actors evolved as characters in different roles throughout the movie. I really appreciated seeing new or familiar faces and new roles as the movie went on. 
Right. And and acting and reacting to yourself, like that's not easy. <laughs> no, not at it's all. Not, especially in a comedy. So I don't even know how they film these scenes because the other thing that is important to note for those who haven't seen it is, it, I mean, it's obvious when you see it, but it's a super low budget film. And for what they accomplished with that money, you can't help but admire them because it's their creativity around that limitation that makes this film. You know, the the fact that they didn't have enough money to buy horses for the film, so they use coconuts instead. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that's probably the, the most classic gag from this movie that pretty much anybody wouldn't be aware of in some capacity is the coconuts for the horse sounds. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, there's little things. And the, and the more that I watch this film, the more that I appreciate that. Um, the, the large wooden Trojan rabbit falling from above the camera. <laughs> um, the animation sequences um you know and, and the fact that yes camelot was only a model a fact that they actually allude to in the script um which is a nice nod um and and the characters you know very often break the fourth wall in the middle of the film which happens a few times you know especially when they're describing each of the, their scenes you know they're like well what do you think of this film just turning to the camera for a moment <laughs> it's right it's uh, it's pretty freaking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's never afraid to just say, you know, we're not taking ourselves seriously and you shouldn't either. So you've got the the coconuts for the horse sounds. You've got the animation that is sometimes 100% deus ex machina, like the, the <laughs> illustrator who has a heart attack mid Black Beast chase. Yes. <laughs> and so they escape because the illustrator wasn't able to finish drawing the sequence. That's perfect. And uh, then you have the, the song and dance of the, the, the songs like at the, the Knights of the Round Table or uh, the, the character who's set to be married off to somebody he doesn't want to be married to. And he keeps trying to break into song and nobody lets him. Um, <laughs> and the killer rabbit. I mean, all, there's, there's so much that is just like 100% ridiculous in this movie. And in any other movie made by any other people none of this would have worked but because it's monty python and because they, they've got their their heads on slightly to the left <laughs> they know what is going to work for them and what doesn't and so it, it's just a fun ride throughout exactly the monty pythons know who they are they know how to write best for each other and they know how to act that out and have the the acting chops and the comedic timing to deliver it so it's you know they have this this appearance, you know, even in the making of or the behind the scenes when you watch it appears like no one knows what they are doing. But believe me, they know <laughs> everything they are doing. They're just conning you into uh, into thinking they're fools when in actual fact they're geniuses, you know. Um, yeah, I, 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 for the story points, you know, I, I, I particularly love the castle when he enters the, the, the castle and just kills everyone. That is hilarious and i and i love those two characters the son and the fa the the father relationship is the most ridiculous father-son relationship you will ever find you know uh, even the opening line is like one day all this will be yours what the curtains and it's just, <laughs> it's just there's so many like little funny lines that you miss and you, you you need to spend time with this movie and story to to appreciate it because there is a story there like you say there there is that quest but that is not the the crucial element. And it's perhaps one of the only films that can kind of get away with that. <laughs> and in fact, they don't even reach the resolution of that quest. They get to no, the end don't. of the movie no. and they don't get to find the grail because, hey, you're arrested for killing a whole lot of people and you're being arrested for questioning or whatever it is. Uh, that, that's so funny that they don't even 
accomplish what they set out to do. So it really is more about their journey to, up to that point. And I, yeah. I, I think that's awesome. Well, it's like a stand-up comic and, and it, that's reaching the punchline. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because a lot of people find that abrupt ending a little off-putting. What, what did you make of the ending? That was one thing that hadn't been spoiled for me. I had no idea. I, I, I And so it caught me off guard. And I love that it's just a fade to black. It's It's good that they got the credits out of the way at the beginning of the film. So at the end of the film, they could just cut to black, the movie's over, putting my hand in front of the camera, and now we're just going to listen to some music, and that's the end. And it, it, since you, you've you sat through this whole movie and hopefully enjoyed yourself, and you've already discovered what kind of humor you're in for, I think if, if you're in that right mindset, then the ending itself, not finding the grail, being arrested by modern-day police officers, that's just the, sort of the icing on top of the cake, or even the cherry on top of the icing on top of the cake. Uh, so I, I, I thought it was funny. I thought it was great. Nice. That's good. It's good to hear. 42 years later, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else about the story or do you want to talk about some characters that we see? Yeah, I think actually, and, and sorry, I don't want to cause you more editing, but um, yeah, I think in, in general, I actually have a lot about the characters and I didn't think I would, but seriously, I have notes and notes and notes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll try to be as brief as possible, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go ahead and start with Arthur right off the top. So what do you have to say about Graham Chapman's Arthur? Well, um, while there is a strong protagonist in Arthur, this is a true kind of ensemble piece, this film, this film, like most of Python's work, you know? It's it's interesting because Graham Chapman at this time was kind of, I get the sense from what I read and from what I hear about the story, like the, the actor who played Arthur, the other Pythons, you know, said he was an alcoholic, a smoker, frequently late, he often missed his lines you know, very insecure, a real kind of mysterious man. Um, but then also kind of an absolute workaholic. You know, he, you you definitely need, always need someone like this in the comedy. He he was perfect at playing the straight man and he always played the lead in, in the films. And Arthur himself as a character, he is, he needs to, we need this character to believe in the story because my God, it derails so often. <laughs> right. We absolutely need this person to, to be as serious as he is. And like I mentioned before, this, this idea that he's constantly having to convince everyone he meets that it is, it is I, Arthur, King of the Britons, and no one believes him except for the, except for his, his, night posse you know <laughs> it's he is the straight man he he is watching as everybody else is being stupid around him you see him take on the black knight and win so you see he's capable of fighting you see him providing his his smarts in approaching castles and um yes also in retreating from castles that, that when his, <laughs> his plans don't go exactly to plan you you hear him yell multiple times in his film run away run away <laughs> and i think that's so funny i think that it's it's funny that a lot of this movie is stuff happening to him. It's not necessarily stuff he does most of the time. He does have has a couple of he does have a couple of moments, but most of the time the movie is about I'm Arthur and look at all these morons around me and the antics that they're getting up to. Exactly that. Exactly that. And you need that to pull you through what, like I said, could be a story that very quickly derails. We we need this this centerpiece. We need the actor to believe in it, and we need to believe in the character and that. That is his purpose. Um, whether it's one of the greatest portrayals of King Arthur, I don't know. But it's <laughs> it, it, because of his seriousness, it just creates such such funny scenes. And, you know, he 
he doesn't tolerate any messing around either. You know, the second time they they approach the the knights of Ni, um, he <laughs> <laughs> he he's not going to go and get a second shrubbery. Like he's <laughs> like this. He he will do what he can if it services him finding this great quest for the Holy Grail. But if he feels like he's been taken for a fool, the same with those, the same with the three-headed knight, the same with the black knight, uh, the same with the French people that are taunting him, then he's not afraid to just just turn around and run away <laughs> or, or, just, or just move on. And, and, and uh, that's, that's the beauty of his character. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, even going to Camelot for the first time, he's, he's gathered all these knights. We've seen him on this quest looking for people to join his round table. And we never see the round table in this movie because they get to Camelot and he he sort of sees in his mind's eye the song and dance sequence that's taking place within the the walls of Camelot. And he says, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to to deal with this foolishness right now. Let's go do something else. Right. <laughs> so it, it's built up as I am Arthur of Camelot. You are the knights of my round table. But let's forget about that stuff right now. Let's go do something else. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Absolutely. What about Lancelot? What what I love about uh, Lancelot in this movie, at least on Wikipedia, the characters are labeled as Lancelot the Brave or Bedivere the Wise or Galahad the Pure. And I, I think those are the names that are sort of associated with those characters from the mythology of Arthur. Is that right? It is. Yeah. Apart from Sir Robin, the not quite so brave as Sir Lancelot. Obviously, that was <laughs> right, in the right. annals of English history. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It all comes from that. So the, the name's on the tin. You know what you're getting into. Yeah. Right. I, I love that they take the names from the, the canon of Arthur and they try and give their own backstory to maybe how they got those names. And so in Lancelot, where in the mythology of Arthur, the actual mythology that we're familiar with, he is this brave character. He is the the lover of Guinevere. He is going off and doing all these brave things. Whereas in this movie, his standout scene is when he charges the castle and slaughters everybody because he gets carried away sometimes. Right. <laughs> there, there was no reason for him to go charging and killing people. It's just sometimes I get carried away. If you saw this film in that moment, if you came into this film and saw that scene, like, this would be a very strange film for you to continue watching after that point. <laughs> right. It's, it's it's maybe the in the most horrific way possible, it's maybe the perhaps the only serious scene in the film, um, which is hilarious. He he's the only real action hero, really, in a story of let's let's face it, mostly cowards, especially Sir Robin. Um he's the most daring and heroic of the bunch. Um I mean he's the first across the bridge of death. He's actually the last knight to run away from the White Rabbit, such as his bravery. So, um, yeah, and and he's arrested eventually, ironically enough, for killing Frank the Historian. But um, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> then you have Sir Robin, the not quite so brave as Sir Lancelot, who is supposedly very brave if you believe the minstrel. Right? He's singing about how how. Robin is unafraid of all these possible ways he could die. And he goes on and on and on about all the different ways that Robin could die. But don't worry, he's not afraid of any of them. And <laughs> leading the charge, you have Robin who's sort of glancing over his shoulder. Like, you know, some of those don't sound all that great. I, I'd rather not die like that. <laughs> you, you sort of see it in his, uh, in the corner of his eye. He's He's not excessively heroic. He's not necessarily even excessively frightened. He's just sort of a normal guy. But because he's a knight of the round table, he has to have something special about him. And so the minstrel is there to exaggerate one way or the other, whether it's about how unafraid of dying he is or how he bravely ran away once things got a little scary. It's it's so hilarious. It's to me, he represents the 
the everyman because I think that the minstrels kind of represent his conscience in a way. I could see that. I think we're we're all very brave. You know, I think in 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 real life we always say a lot of things and don't do them. You know, we <laughs> we hear a horror story about someone being beaten up and we're like, well, if I was in that situation, I would beat that guy to a pulp, you know? And then come to it, of course, we would probably run away, you know? Um <laughs> it's and I so I think he represents that 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 part of our human um uh, uh kind of the just the way we 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 approach life as human beings and i think to me he is so lancelot is who i would want to be and so robin is probably who i actually would be <laughs> <laughs> well even in that final scene when they're approaching the the bridge of death and robin says you know i don't know if i could answer these these questions i don't want to chance it because i don't want to die right now not like this and then lancelot is asked of course, of course, Lancelot is the brave, so he goes across first, like you mentioned, and he gets asked, what is your favorite color? Oh, I can answer that. That's easy. And so now Robin's full of bravery. He's like, oh, the, uh, I can do this. No problem. And he's asked what the capital of Assyria is. He said, I don't know that. And then he's punished for it. He, he's killed because he didn't know the answer. Uh, so that, that that it's funny seeing how he... he almost cold-blooded in a way. You know, he, he rises to the temperature of the area around him. So whether it's it's too dangerous for him and he needs to back away or whether it's a little bit calmer or a little bit more relaxed and oh that's an easy question i can say my favorite color and then he's punished for that yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly he he so so to me he i i don't want to say that i relate to him because i think i relate to all of them but i i think it's it's a very kind of uh, human character you know even though he's not necessarily uh, a huge part in the film but yeah the, the minstrels his band of minstrels are hilarious with their lyrics and you know they keep reminding him his yellow belly and 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 they do and they do just serve as his conscience you know it's like when 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 any of us do anything embarrassing and if you're any, if you're anything like me dear listener like you will <laughs> you will do something embarrassing at least once an hour um <laughs> so you know it's just those those little thoughts that keep you lying lying awake at night you know he was not in the least bit scared to be better. You know, it's it's just it's so it's just so funny those lyrics that just like keep niggling away at him, and and to have that represented as 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 people surround him just kind of almost crushes his confidence as much as supports him. <laughs> so it's it's a very very funny character, and and I, and I think that's true of all of them. You know, that's how I look at it. I don't necessarily relate to one character in particular; rather, I relate to all of them because they each each one of the knights exhibits all the different traits of the human character you know it's bravery cowardice curiosity loyalty uh, and sheer dogged determination in the face of certain peril and potentially death you know there are, there are many but at the same time there are that there is one you know which is the way i've always thought of the knights of the round table whether it was conceived that way or not what other characters do you want to talk about I've always been particularly fond of Sir Bedivere the Wise because he is anything but, or rather, right. <laughs> he is he is wise for the time. Like I said before, he's <laughs> he he's doing the best with the knowledge he has at the time and and going about it in a very kind of roundabout way. But uh, yeah, he's he's very loyal. He's the first knight to to join Arthur. Um, but there's some very weird moments. Like he later on he. He tries to convince Arthur that the Earth is banana-shaped and things like that, and I think that <laughs> that was a kind of nod to the the scientists at the time, this point in history, like the tenth century. You know, they they were just doing the best with the knowledge they had, and and that 
is is comedic in itself. It doesn't even need a joke because it it is a joke. And that whole witch scene that he is featured in the first time we see him is just the funniest one of the funniest scenes to me in cinematic history, not just uh, in this film. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's another one of those classic Monty Python and the Holy Grail scenes that I was aware of before seeing the movie is just because, you know, that's that's often quoted from everywhere. You you hear, does he weigh more than a duck? What, does she weigh less than a duck? Or I, I, I wasn't familiar with all the intricacies of that scene. I didn't know about the whole trying to draw conclusions. So witches burn, therefore witches made of wood, so wood floats, ducks float. There's the equation there. I, I, I didn't know that that whole like stair step connectedness ahead of time. And so that, that was a new discovery for me. So it was nice to get that context for the joke that I was already familiar with. Awesome. Yeah. It, it just it, And the people, even the extras in this film are amazing. They're just obsessed with burning this witch, you know, burn her, you know, they're, <laughs> they're just crying at the top of their lungs, <laughs> obsessed to get to the point, but by any means necessary. And it's, it's, it's so, so hilarious. It's so, so funny. Um, at, at least for, for other characters, uh, you know, just very briefly, um, Sagal had the pure. I think I think he's a very Christian character um, that the Michael Palin plays. You know, uh, he's super committed to the Grail. Um, you know, at, at first when he when he enters the the horribly named Castle Anthrax. Um, <laughs> that castle is not named Castle Anthrax, by the way. <laughs> That's just for this film. Um, right. <laughs> but but yeah, you know, he's he's sworn to chastity and, until he kind of gets overly tempted so it kind of represents the you know maybe the temptation part the kind of devil side of this film if you if you want if you do want to draw a christian allegory to it um and then he just gets rescued um you know again the uh lancelot coming in and saving the day when it's not necessarily a day that galahad wants saving from <laughs> so yeah and and you know unfortunately there isn't necessarily a good distribution of female characters across this film because the pythons are all male but you know you get connie booth playing the witch and miss islington you get um you know zoot and dingo in that scene and all the female characters come at once characterized in in the way that let's say certain men would like women to be characterized all the time <laughs> so yeah, it, it, when I watch that, that kind of irks me a little bit, but 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 still, it, it it's done in a comedic way, and it's so funny, and and even God is hilarious to me. I mean, I don't know how offensive that is to some people, but it, it's hilarious his characterization. You will never find a characterization like that in anything. You know, when he says, "Oh, it's like those miserable psalms; they're so depressing," and <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think it's doing it not in a mean spirited way. It's kind of it's poking fun at the religion of what perhaps. God might think, not necessarily that that is what he would think or care to say, but it's, 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 a, it's even that is approached in a very, uh, from a very different angle. And I appreciate that. And the, the, the last character for me that I really like is Tim the Enchanter. <laughs> Tim the Enchanter. Very nice. Oh. I, I did want to mention the, the scene at Castle Anthrax was probably my, one of my favorite moments of breaking the fourth wall where Zoot just turns to the screen, or maybe it's Dingo, I can't remember at this point, turns to the screen and says, I, I think the scene is going well. We were worried about it, but I think it's better than some of the previous scenes. And then it cuts to the other characters who we just saw uh, who are, are putting up a fight because, hey, our scenes were just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's about, Yeah, just like, get on with it. Yeah, get on with it. Get on with it. Yeah, it's, it's right. <laughs> it's hilarious. I love that. You know, the, the, the only time I can think of in, in recent years that that's happened is uh, is Deadpool. 
And then there's the Black Knight, of course. That's another one of those scenes that I was familiar with in some capacity. You always hear, it was just a flesh wound. You hear that kind of stuff. So this was my first time <laughs> seeing that scene in context. And it, it, it's funny because it I didn't know it's at the hands of Arthur. And he basically witnesses the Black Knight beating this guy to a pulp and killing him and shoving a sword through his face. And then Arthur goes against him. You don't know how things are going to turn out. But then it turns out, oh, Arthur takes him down easily. Maybe the Black Knight wasn't this big bad dude that we thought he was. And so that that's equally funny, especially paired with his banter and constant challenging of Arthur, despite obviously losing this fight. Yeah, and it's gruesome. It's it's really bloody. Like that the, the moment the sword goes through the the green knight's head in the very beginning, it's 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 not perhaps easy to look at. You know, if this wasn't a comedy and seeing all that clearly fake blood everywhere so yeah i apart from arthur that character the black knight is perhaps the most determined character in this film (laughs) in any film you know (laughs) all these limbs are removed you know by the end so yeah i love it (laughs) and then he's just like we'll call it a draw (laughs) (laughs) right after being completely delimbed we'll call it a draw okay exactly (laughs) well cool any other characters just briefly, I always admired, um, obviously, the, the Knights of Knee, and the, there's definitely, you know, everyone's kind of favorite characters. I, I definitely appreciated the three-headed knight, which is someone that I, I feel is often forgotten when people review this movie or reflect on it. That's hilarious as well, because that that is, again, representing, you know, three parts of human psyche in one body. And then, of course, he doesn't get to fight. And thank goodness, because goodness knows on their limited budget how that would work. Um, I'm sure they could have made it work, but <laughs> it's, it's just 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 hilarious. It's it it kind of represents. I don't know as an American or 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 someone of another nationality, but at least as an Englishman, you know, the script at times is just reflecting thoughts that I have in my own in my own head. So <laughs> it's it's hilariously represented. What about music? So. I don't. I don't have a whole lot to say about music. I'm going to sort of defer to you, the resident composer. Um, <laughs> but I, I've already mentioned both of Neil Inn's songs, where which were the Knights of the Round Table, which is this wonderfully farcical dancing around, being ridiculous, being super over the top in Camelot, and that convinces Arthur, oh yeah, that place is like that. Let's go somewhere else. And then the Brave Sir Robin, sung by Neil Inns in the film, who's playing the the head minstrel. And singing about one, all the ways that Robin could die, and then how he bravely ran away. Uh, And constantly reiterating, he bravely ran away, he bravely ran away, and sort of just (laughs) drilling into Robin's head, you ran away. And we'll say it was brave, but you know in your heart it probably wasn't really all that brave. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 so so good. Like every every single lyric in that, like the especially of the when it when it's tailing off. Um, there's a lot of kind of moments in the script where the dialogue is tailing off, and if you have your speakers turned down, you're going to miss a joke. So if you watch this definitely turn your speakers up you know um it's it's that important. There's a lot of different soundtrack versions that came out for this, and I. I don't know. I, I I read on one that this song was called Oh Brave Sir Robin, at least the the first uh, iteration they give, the first refrain they sing. Um, but yeah, the lyrics are so funny, especially at that moment where they're like, his, his head smashed in and his heart cut out and his liver removed and his bowels unplugged and his nostrils <laughs> raped and his bottom burned off and his penis. And then they cut it. <laughs> so it's, right, right. 
Uh, oh my goodness, it's it's hilarious. Of course, those Rob, Robin's minstrels are eaten later. You know, um, they're they're eaten by the Knights of the Round Table in a in a quick little animation, which is which is really funny. Um, Neil Neil Inns, um, who's responsible for for this music and playing that part, as you mentioned, um, there is a really comical making of this film, which I think you can find on YouTube if you care to, um, where Neil describes the music of this film as as, as terror and heroics to either create a lump in the throat or make the the back hairs stick out which is i think what not only his music does but the the additional music that is provided uh, this happened in a, in a lot of films back then and particularly television shows you would get uh, big production music libraries that would contribute um, especially to BBC shows and one of those libraries was uh, the DeWolf music library very very famous at least in England um, I, I think for for choosing one of those random music selections, the one that I would choose is a piece called The Flying Messenger, which is written by a chap called Oliver Armstrong. And it plays during that scene we mentioned earlier when uh, Lancelot just storms the castle, the Swamp Castle, I guess it's called, <laughs> and just kills all the guests. And, and again, you know, you're thinking, well, why is killing everyone funny? You know, isn't that just gratuitous violence? Here, no. <laughs> For the first time in cinematic history, no, because it's accompanied by such serious, heroic music underpinning every action, just... Uh, pushing him and providing the impetus for his actions all the way until he reaches the top of the tower, and it's it's so so funny. I I, I can't I can't get over uh, that scene. You know, if there's one scene that I go back to every time, it's it, it's that one. And I am not a horror fan at all. <laughs> like I, th there's a lot of horror films that are my favorite, but uh, as a genre, like I I definitely lean towards uh, towards other places. But uh, yeah, it's so so good. There's there's a lot to be spoken of here and it isn't necessarily a strict soundtrack that you can follow uh, linearly but there is definitely certain themes that are used from that music library that appear uh, again and again and uh, yeah it's uh, it's just hilarious and I've, I've spoken about a song I've spoken about a score and, and permit me if you will I just want to focus on a musical sting sure. whenever they say uh, whenever the Knights of Ni or the Knights of Patang Patang, whatever it is, uh, <laughs> whenever they say, <laughs> we want a shrubbery, uh, you get this really scary musical sting in strings. <laughs> and it's, it's like anytime they say shrubbery, that happens. Um, it's pretty frightening. It's so funny and it adds so much weight to that word because, you know, what is inherently scary about a shrubbery? No, what, what even is a shrubbery? No one knows. Um, <laughs> just... <laughs> right, right. I've always heard shrub and shrubbery sort of applies to maybe a collection of shrubs or a, a garden uh, decoration of some sort, but I'd never right. heard of something referred to as a shrubbery. <laughs> no, so that was, this is the first that time I've heard and that it, word. It provided a level of comedy just from the fact that they were calling it a shrubbery. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there, you know, as all best comedies, you you need that serious moment, and 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 like you said, going right back to the start with the opening credits, you know, that very serious, intense opening titles music behind those uh, hilarious Swedish subtitles. If this was placed, if this music was placed under any other opening titles, you would kind of be forgiven for mistaking this for a, I don't know, a, an art house piece or something, <laughs> and then it. And then it seeks into that kind of, let's call it Mexican party music and <laughs> just descends into <laughs> hilarity from there. So 
Yeah, there's so many good musical moments too, but uh, of course that's that is not necessarily what this 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 film is is all about. It's just providing a a good undercurrent of emotion. <laughs> yeah, the most obvious uh, musical cue for me is probably the one that they used for King Arthur's heroic theme that you hear multiple times throughout the movie. Uh, if it's the one I'm thinking of, I think it's called Homeward Bound, composed by Jack Tromby. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, which I don't, I don't have a whole lot to say about it, but I just, it, it's, it's perfect. It, it fits the more serious vibe of Arthur himself and the the Arthurian mythology that we're used to, and so it fits into that very, very well. And it's used very appropriately at those moments, and it's accompanied and sandwiched on either side from uh, with all these more ridiculous musical moments and these ridiculous sketch scenes. And so, yeah, I, I think the music, even though it doesn't have a strict composed score for this movie, the music is used to great effect in whichever situation it is used. So cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and you know, because it's always attached to a certain character, it, it does have a kind of a uh, thematic uh, connection to to each character or each scenario you know the music i mentioned about him storming into swamp castle uh, you know that music is used again against the killer rabbit you know the music you mentioned i i always think of that theme as, as traveling music I, and i right. and I, I i hope the the listeners know what i mean by that it's just good kind of driving music or in this case kind of prancing music i guess we can call it <laughs> prancing to coconuts it's almost this group's fellowship theme <laughs> yeah we could call it that yeah <laughs> nowhere near as good but yeah absolutely no no yeah, yeah, yeah. it it's... serves the same purpose though right exactly yes 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 so so true and and the only the last thing i would mention about the music is just the the priest's choral chant when every time they sing a line they just slap the 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 wood off their head <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> You know, I think that scene is one that I do remember from that time we watched it in my middle school class. I, I think I remember that specifically. Ah. <laughs> Which is a strange thing to remember out of the whole context of this movie, but I guess as a middle schooler, age 13 or 14, uh, here, seeing these guys walking around slamming boards into their face would make quite an imprint. Seriously, yeah. And and I, 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 I don't know whether you appreciated that, that jazz organ sound for the intermission too. <laughs> yeah. The oh. intermission that takes place with like 10 minutes left of the movie. Right. Uh, very weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're at the point where in most movies we would talk about the deeper themes or relevance. And, you know, this movie doesn't have a whole lot. It is more of a comedy. We did talk about its connections to Arthurian legend and its connections to or parodies of actual historical situations of this time, the sickness, the the lack of scientific knowledge, all that kind of stuff. So... In lieu of talking more about themes and relevance, let's do what we normally do with our comedy discussions and just say some of our favorite jokes, because I think we've already been doing that a little bit, but there's there's plenty more where that came from. So, Wendell, how about you start us off with uh, one or two of your favorite jokes or gags from the movie? Camelot. 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 It's only a model. Shh. I... <laughs> That's... <laughs> That's hilarious. And I love the line that is perhaps so referential, you know, on second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Like that perfectly describes not only that scene, but the film itself. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't quote the movie as well as you can. So <laughs> as I was writing my notes last night, I was just writing specific quotes in the moment. So I don't have a whole lot of context for all of these, but uh, there's a scene where he's asking for your dead. 
And <laughs> this guy comes carrying a very alive person. And he's saying, you know, I'm feeling fine. And he responds, you're not fooling anyone you know about the guy who's there talking and is obviously not dead, but he's trying to <laughs> hand over him as a dead person. And so that was one of the earlier lines that made me laugh. Uh, was you're not fooling anyone you know <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 the little runaway gags like that you know uh one one point when they they talk about what the witch did to them and of course she didn't do anything they dressed her up like a witch <laughs> and then the white guy goes, right. she turned me into a newt and everyone looks at him and he says I got better. <laughs> and the, 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 I don't know if you caught this I think it is Sir Robin who says uh, during the the the, the amazing uh, killer rabbit scene, you know, he he actually says a little throwaway line. Would it help to confuse it if we ran away more? <laughs> yeah, just, that was a good one. It's so Python, and and of course because I'm English, I have to go with this one. The whole scene between the English and French to begin with, there are so many funny lines in that. Like they the French say that they've already got a holy grail, and Arthur says, "Can we come up and have a look?" <laughs> and the French guy goes, of course not. You are English types. <laughs> and then Arthur, like, just, I mean, it's the 10th century. What does he know about the world? He's like, well, what are you then? And he's like, I'm French. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent? <laughs> it's just, it's hilarious. All those, all those uh, insults by the French. Uh, he's like, oh, I told him we are the Catalan. It's, it's so funny. So, so funny. Like, where, where do you even begin in quoting this, this film? But honestly, you could just watch it again and again and again and keep finding quotes and little bits that you missed, which is the beauty of it, of this film and why it's, uh, it, it's heralded as one of the greats. That is very true. And, you know, the Frenchman insult scene was uh, another one of those ones where I was very familiar with individual lines. I didn't have the context, but I, I knew the the smell of elderberries and I knew the fart in your general direction and all that good kind of stuff. And so it's it's fun to to be aware of these jokes. I imagine it's the same as somebody who knows the quote, no, I am your father, and then finally watches Empire Strikes Back the first time. Yes. Right? It's that same sort of, okay, now I have context for this thing that I've known about for so long. And so that was what a lot of this movie was, was me knowing some of the jokes and then finally being able to place them and picture them in my head because I know how it goes now. Yes, that's awesome. And now you can do that and quote it with me on Twitter every single day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is definitely something we can do. One thing that I would say before I, I, I move on to my final thoughts, I mean, I could honestly talk about this film for seven hours, so uh, I need to shut up soon. <laughs> I don't want to bore anyone. But yeah, I, I do think that there there is some kind of uh, takeaway or theme from this film for me. And I I mean, I th I think this film, it, it's still current as all the best films are, you know, uh, whether it's intentional or not. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not going to sit here and pretend it's some kind of socioeconomic piece on our culture, but it, it certainly touches on it in a comedic and rather witty way. And, you know, as, as, as a, a, a Brit, as an Englishman, this film is a glimpse into the very clearly defined uh, class system in England as all the best classic English comedies did back in the day. The, the characters defy their class, however, and, and the story really pokes fun at the whole idea of, of power in general. Uh, you know, to leave you with a, with a, a couple of last uh, jokes and comedic lines that I really like, uh, one of the most hilarious side characters to me is, is Derek. 
who delivers the a great line of dialogue to Arthur. He says, listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not for some farcical aquatic ceremony. I I love that whole scene. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how that plays. I, I, I just love it. He says, you know, you, you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you, which is, of course spot on you know and exposes kings throughout human history as the farce they are you know <laughs> so right and that that same character is the one who who gives a very great help help i'm being repressed right <laughs> <laughs> i love those characters i don't even know what they're doing chad what are they doing they're just playing in the mud <laughs> yeah that, that's basically it they're just uh being being us normal people who who don't have any nobility and so that's what we do all day windows we play in the mud <laughs> so I, I love that they're playing in mud and then describing an anarcho-syndicalist commune you know i mean it's just it's hilarious it's people defining their defying their class and that's that's what i love this film for i mean you know before you get your your, your pens out um people who are writing thesis on this film uh don't i think it's impossible uh <laughs> good luck with that <laughs> if you are but seriously i think they're there are some kind of takeaways in the way that it is such a, a kind of comedy on, on 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 English culture now, and also just the 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 Middle Ages in general, and what life was like. And I think that to uh, to someone who, who who was born in England, they can perhaps take away more of those themes than someone who isn't. But uh, yeah, it's not it's not exactly Hitchcock or Noam Chomsky. You know, this is <laughs> you're just here to have a good time. That's that's all it is. Yeah, and I've got to say, this being my first time watching through the movie, I did have a good time, and I'm looking forward good, to I'm <laughs> going back and watching more and being able to quote it more properly. <laughs> well, I shall be waiting on Twitter. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, um, any any other final thoughts from you, Wendell? Yeah, I think the the funny thing today is, I mean, I I watched this film in in preparation for this show a few times. I I really didn't need to, but uh, <laughs> I, I did a watch few it times. Again. I'm impressed. <laughs> Just to refresh my memory, but but I kind of had it on in the background, and I would say that it is so good, it even works as a radio drama. So even if you're not watching the film, if you've got it on in the background, if you're ironing, playing Jenga, I don't know, whatever you do, listener, um, <laughs> if you have it on in the background it will give you just as much pleasure and 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 one word of warning for those uninitiated who have never seen this film before if if you have drawn the short straw in the life lottery and are unfortunate enough to be english a sentiment you will only understand if you are in fact english then you are actually in luck because this film absolutely reeks in irony and satire of our little country especially for non-city folk if you grew up in a village or a market town even a small town in america if, if you grew up there in those places then you will probably encounter these characters in your daily life already <laughs> it's just a, a who's who in a small village <laughs> well cool i think that wraps it up for us Wendell that is the end of the official 38th episode of Cinescope thank you so much for talking about this movie with me thank you so much Chad it's an absolute pleasure I'm so glad you had me thanks for having me really enjoyed it me too and it, it, another great excuse to watch a movie that I 
hadn't seen and finally be able to come around and join the party, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of fun and I, I, I'm glad you did. And I hope all the, uh, the attentive cinescopers, do you have a name for them? <laughs> I don't, but maybe I should think about that. that, that that's a, a contender on the list. Oh, okay. Well, I, I hope every single one of you lovely people out there got a, got a kick out of it too. And um, yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Jed. Awesome. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast or at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please go to iTunes, help out the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. That's the best way to help us to grow as a show, grow our audience, and to reach new people. Email feedback and ideas to the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting, if you have a movie like Monty Python and the Holy Grail for Wendell here that you love that you could talk about for 45 minutes plus. I would love to hear from you and maybe get you on the show sometime in the future. So Wendell, where can people find you and your work online? People can find me in a cantina in Mexico City. If they want to find me online, <laughs> the best place to do so is, like I mentioned at the start of the show, sightyoursoundtheater.com. Uh, you can find all our links to social media there, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, SoundCloud, YouTube, you know, all that jazz. <laughs> Except for Snapchat, because while I love comedy, I fail at it myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't use Snapchat all that much either, so no, no. Uh, hard feelings there. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we can get together and do some Monty Python sketches at one time in the future. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> and uh, I, I can't recommend uh, Sideshow Sound out there enough to everybody. I Like I said, I've been listening for almost three years now going on it. That's how long you guys wow, have been uh, doing the podcast, I believe. And uh, you want a good place to start? Go for one of their score guides where they they sit down track by track on an album release and they talk about its context in the film. They talk about the musical analysis of each track and it it is a great listen. They've got ones for all the Star Wars films, almost all the Star Wars films so far. That's a great place to start, I think. Yeah, and if you're talking to Sideshow on, on social, you're talking to me. So don't be shy. Come and say hello. And thank you so much, Chad. That was a fantastic uh, plug. Wonderful words. We'll... We'll talk again. <laughs> we will. We will. Maybe to talk about some Black Swan. Maybe we'll see what else. Maybe so. Ooh, now there is an invitation <laughs> I cannot refuse. <laughs> <laughs> the best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at the website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you one more time, once again, Wendell, for being on the show. It's been fun going through this this farce and this comedy with you tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yes, thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 38. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 39. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.